Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how are you? I'm grand, thanks Ed. How are you? I am good, yes. I am uh, a little bit flustered today because I had a power cut. It wasn't as bad as the one that happened a couple of weeks ago where I had lost power and internet for, I think I lost power for eight hours and internet for... 13 or something like that which uh, meant that we couldn't record that week but uh, this one only lasted 10 seconds so i hadn't even finished drafting the message saying uh we may have a problem before the power all the lights suddenly went back on but it did knock out the internet for like 20 minutes so that's bad enough apart from that <laughs> apart from that i'm all right <laughs> so we'll go on to the news for this week and it's currently the Cannes film festival happening in Cannes, as it does every year and we're getting kind of bits and pieces of of news coming out of their responses and reactions to some of the films that hopefully are going to be uh, making us all very excited for the possibilities of cinema in the weeks ahead. Terrence Malick's new movie just debuted and is uh, being uh, heralded as a return to form, which I think is, as someone who liked Song to Song, I think that's a little unfair, but certainly it's been a while since he's had a film out that has been universally liked. He's very Mm. much like the last three he's put out have been kind of uh curios for completists it seems or like more lukewarm reception overall generally Mm. or or sharply divided yes it's it's not like everyone's going oh it's all right it's like some people like this is awful masturbatory nonsense and others saying this is great masturbatory nonsense (laughs) it's all (laughs) masturbatory that's the key point to take away from malik's recent Mm. output (laughs) Yeah, the the movies he makes between uh, line dancing or uh, whatever he does, because there was a story a few years ago which was like someone just went to Austin and like saw him dancing with his wife in a in a bar and everything, and everyone was suddenly realizing, oh yeah, I guess he is just like a normal guy who's just not <laughs> on the internet. Like he's not really that reclusive. Uh, just the fact that there aren't any pictures of him, uh, it just seems strange now in that in yeah. our <laughs> more uh, visual orientated context. Yes. Uh, uh, the other movie that's kind of getting some great notices is uh, The Lighthouse, the new movie from Robert Eggers. I always want to say Dave Eggers, but they are very Same. <laughs> The director of The Witch, uh, starring Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, which uh, I have pointedly not read too much about because I am just excited to go in and watch that movie and be surprised by it because it, it looks beautiful from the images that have been released. I like Dafoe and Pattinson a lot. And I really liked the mood and tone and feel of The Witch. So uh, if he's making a new movie, I'm going to be excited to see how it turns out, particularly with the people he's assembled. Same. I've just seen stills and heard the buzz. And I'm very excited on that alone. And that will do me until it actually comes out, I have to say. Mm, Yeah. Don't want to be uh, too spoiled on on that sort of stuff. Uh, On a related note in terms of, directors who have made horror movies for a24 i saw the trailer for midsummer today which i hadn't seen up until oh, now oh 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 my and that looks good as someone who doesn't uh, enjoys what ariasta does and loves florence Pugh and basically the most of the people that are in the cast i am really excited and as someone who 
is always interested by people who decide to try and do something different with horror, in this case, making one that takes place in blaring sunshine. Well, because Ari Aster featured so heavily in our formerly cursed horror episode, (laughs) and I'm really Mm. excited to see this because I think from the trailer, compared to the trailer for Hereditary, for example, what you see in the trailer is horrific, but it's about the first third of the film. Mm. So looking at this, I'm like, oh, where is this going to go? And it looks... There's there's heavy Wicker Man vibes, obviously. Yes. And the little kind of subliminal flashes that people have screenshotted that happen towards the end of the trailer already hint at a lot of what's going on. And there's a kind of teen slasher feel to it. We've mm. got um, everyone's favourite chili baby, Cheedy, <laughs> featuring. <laughs> um, so I'm looking forward to seeing what he does as part of this kind of like small ensemble. But yeah, fuck me up, Harry. I'm ready. And in other Robert Pattinson news, it was announced this week that he's going to be playing Batman in Matt Reeves's The Batman, which Pat-Man. has been... Yep, Batman. I like our bats. Our bats is really uh, good. As, a, as an alternative. Yeah, this is a project that's been announced, was announced quite a while ago They the, that Warner Brothers said that they were going to do a bunch of movies that weren't necessarily tied into the the timeline of what they've been doing with their connected universe stuff. Yeah. Uh, which is why at one point they seem to have like seven Joker movies in development. Only one of which, of course, has uh, come to fruition, it seems. But this certainly seems like one of the more promising, you know, it's, it's directed by Matt Reeves, who previously did the second and third Planet of the Apes movies, which uh, I liked quite a bit. And also, I think he did Let Me In, the American remake of Let the Right One In, which was uh-huh. um, better than you would have expected, given that uh, you're, you're working with a really good, really good source material. Yeah. But it's a it's, it's a really fascinating idea of basically saying doing with the films what comics have done for ages, which is having kind of like parallel titles, essentially, and the same characters off doing different things in different tones. And I like that idea more certainly it's more interesting than a lot of what we've been seeing them doing with the main titles in their in their series and, and seems to tie in also to what they did with Shazam, which was very, very different in yes. tone and feel and really genre than uh, all the other stuff. So I've been interested in the idea for a long time, but Pattinson as the Batman himself seems like a really interesting and inspired choice because other than obviously he became more widely known and famous for being in the Twilight movies and that one Harry Potter movie where he obviously had a key role. But he's spent much of the last six or seven years really pushing in the opposite direction of that. You know, he's he's used his clout as someone who has a fairly big, rabid fan base and as someone who probably has a fair amount of, you know, money coming in from royal you know, Twilight royalty checks to work with smaller directors you know he's worked with Cronenberg he's done a movie most recently High Life with Claire Denis he's mm. he's just um uh, uh, The Lost City of Zed the James Gray movie he's just basically pursued uh interesting work with interesting directors and it's it seems interesting now that he would choose to return to doing something more mainstream when he has spent so long seeming to say that's ah, not really for me uh, I wonder if it's because he perhaps feels a little more confident in being able to handle 
that kind of movie as opposed to Twilight, which seemed to be something that he didn't enjoy making and which kind of became a runaway phenomenon that uh, I would I would imagine anyone would find quite daunting to be a part of and to be at the centre of. And I think he can afford to be more selective now off the back of Twilight because yes. that did absolutely make him and there was a kind of Leo mania surrounding him around that time and now his core fan base have maybe managed to shake off the kind of shackles of hysteria slightly but they're mm. still they're still interested but for me like as soon as i heard the news i just thought of course because speaking of cronenberg look at cosmopolis he turns mm. in such a brilliant performance in that because it's just it feels a bit more like a bottle episode or something because he's just in this limo this was made what seven years ago but he is yeah. playing bruce wayne without the batman Mm. So, so I think yeah. he's a, I think he's a brilliant choice, and I look forward to seeing a different angle because I think, and my issue with Nolan overall, I'm not against turning franchises darker or rebooting them to be you know grittier, for lack of a better word, gritty but slick, brick, mm-hmm. slitty, yeah, no, um, <laughs> yeah, but I think Pattinson will bring. A, a kind of holistic performance in I don't think it, I don't mm. think it's going to be too it's not going to be that Nolan sense of like things are dark and hard and everyone speaks the same and no one can crack a joke like I think there's mm. I hope that there will be like a little thread of camp running through it because I think Cosmopolis actually as a film has a lot of juiciness and scandal to it because it's kind of roughly the same time that Cronenberg was making Map to the Stars which is yeah. it's got this satirical bite to it and that's what I hope that Pattinson will will bring I think he's got a roundedness to his performances now that will bring that awareness so I'm excited I am I didn't think I would be but I'm on board yeah I I am really excited to see what he does and I really hope that the interesting choices and the energy that he brings to a lot of his other work won't get flattened out by the franchisiness of it Mm. and the the big corporate machine which i think is kind of the the thing that happened with christian bale and the batman movies because obviously prior to that he was very much like a young very exciting actor who made all of these really bold interesting choices in a lot of movies but every time when as soon as he became batman he kind of became a little bit more dull in the role like he's he's a fun bruce wayne like he really does seem to enjoy playing up the playboy side of things but it's still not particularly interesting compared to what he did as like uh patrick bateman or whatever yeah um like he he, there's always that risk when someone who is like a really fascinating actor when they're given a lot of leeway gets a lot of that stuff kind of sanded off the edges when they when they take on a bigger role the the notable exception being something like uh, Johnny Depp in the first Pirates movie where he just made a bunch of choices that freaked the heads of Disney out and they ended up working bringing in people precisely for that anticness and then containing them never turns out well mm. like what 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 is the point of hiring those people if you're done, if you are then just going to restrict them Mm. And I think it also makes for an interesting parallel with 
Pattinson's co-star from Twilight, Kristen Stewart, who has mm. followed a very similar path. You know, she was in these five hugely successful movies, which uh, generated a lot of hate uh, for her and generated this idea that she was a terrible actress. And Pattinson had some of this as well, but I think it was probably worse for Kristen Stewart because she's a woman, but also uh, because Bella was kind of like the central character of those movies. So, uh, yeah, she was she just shouldered a lot of the hate for those movies in general. But in the years since then, she's done like incredible work in a bunch of different movies and on different levels. She won a Cesar for Personal Shopper, I want yes. to say. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, was really credible, uh, incredible and also generated one of my favourite ever pictures from an award show, which is her, I think, after she'd won, just like, you know, they take the, po- uh, the portraits of people posing with their awards and her just holding it up and pointing it with a look on her face that says, I can't believe this has happened. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Which is uh, just wonderful and charming. And she is also kind of going back into the realm of mainstream movies with the forthcoming Charlie's Angel remake, which I think is coming out next year. Mm. And it does seem kind of very interesting that both of them have gone on this path where they achieved a huge amount of success fairly early on in their career and are used that to take risks and to maybe take on roles that if they didn't have that kind of level of financial security and that level of clout maybe they would have been dissuaded from taking because they would say, yo, there's no money in it. You know, you need to get your name out there or whatever. But when you already have like high rate name recognition and you're financially like reasonably well off, then it makes sense to kind of do all this smaller, more daring work. And then now what is the more daring thing, (laughs) I guess, than going, hey, I'll do a studio blockbuster. You know, let me let me try that. I haven't done that in a while. Yeah. And our next story is the news that Disney have taken full operational control of Hulu, uh, the streaming service which they had been a part owner of alongside Fox, which obviously they bought, so they got their shares of it, and NBC Universal until um, until you know this week when this was announced. Universal, I believe, still have a stake in it, but Disney are basically going to run things, and NBC's shows will remain on there for a little while, but will eventually migrate off over the next couple of years as they launch their own free ad-supported streaming service and this is obviously very interesting because again it's a sign of how much and how quickly Disney are just kind of consolidating their control of a lot of entities within Hollywood but it's also a sign of as that consolidation is happening on a a corporate level there's also very much a fracturing of how people are able to experience television because yeah. Hulu, as an idea, was like, oh, this is going to be a place where you can watch pretty much anything for a subscription fee or, or for free because it was free for a long time as if you just got ads. And for a while, most of the networks are in there and then CBS stopped having their stuff on there because they wanted to launch their own streaming service. It definitely feels as if you're... We've talked about this in the past, but, you know, we're definitely moving to a situation where there's not really going to be a central point anymore other than, you know, the existing form of cable and TV, which are kind of slowly losing their relevance. There there isn't going to be a place where 
anyone can watch a huge amount of stuff. It's going to be a lot of different places are going to offer you a little thing and you're going to maybe end up in a situation of a la carte bundling if you want to watch stuff from a variety of different sources, which, uh, you know, is probably going to end up costing people about as much, if not more, than a cable subscription in the end. Yeah. God, I don't uh, know if I have anything else to say about that. Just, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, every every Disney story kind of feels like that. Uh, and they also announced, I think, a bunch of new layoffs like the other week as well, which is great. All the good stuff coming from their massive success and buying Fox. And now just a, a fun, lighter story. There's going to be a new Mortal Kombat movie, which kind of makes sense, I guess, in, in the sense that that series has had a real resurgence in the last couple of years through the three games that have been put out uh, by Neverrealm, I think they're called, the company that makes it now. And those three games have been very, very well received and have really reinvigorated people's love for the Mortal Kombat franchise and the characters and the insanely complicated backstory that they've come up with at this point, which involves all sorts of stuff about time travel and characters dying and being brought back as zombies and past versions hating each other it's very complicated and weird um so i I don't know how much of that would be in a prospective movie but you would think that they would maybe go for that if they were doing it and in the wake of the success of something like detective pikachu it makes sense that maybe people would look at video games again as a source for for material for films after a few years where you know post the need for speed movie and assassin's creed people didn't really seem that interested and we're coming to kind of a culmination of like a certain stage of the MCU and I think Mortal Kombat probably provides a sense of escapism. Again, I'm just looking for camp. Maybe we're living in the last days of the Neo-Weimar Republic. I don't know. I'm just looking for cabaret, old chum. Mm. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I, welcome, I welcome some properly choreographed, oversaturated... Pew pew, punch punch, pow, <laughs> with open arms. Yeah, and I think the greatest obstacle they would face in making a movie now is like the fatalities in mm. those games mm-hmm. are just now so brutal and yet so over the top and silly. Yes. That it, it'd be very hard to translate those to to the big screen like in the most recent one you know there's a bit where one character slight tears off some another you know when they kill someone and they do the fatality they tear off the face then the next layer of the face then the next layer of the face after that so the Ah, brain's exposed the the, the infamous many layers of the face (laughs) yes and then they spear the brain and they take a bite out of it it's just (laughs) utterly bizarre and weird and there's one where johnny cage like chops someone in half and then uses the top half of their body as a marionette puppet as a as a as a ventriloquist dummy of course and tells bad jokes and then the dummy gets hit by a tomato you know it's like very silly and weird and camp well, it's very slapstick mm, yeah and and kind of looney tunes yes and i think that's a tone that's going to be very hard to translate to a movie yeah, um, yeah. because you would have to be on the one hand have this very serious law about you know the this fighting contest that's meant to you know determine the fate of the world and all these kind of like colorful characters but with a tone that is literally 
just gleefully violent and silly and very like you say very looney tunes very itchy and scratchy yeah uh, but also kind of you know <laughs> with a level of photorealism that makes you, the stomach turn mm, mm. so good luck with that whoever makes <laughs> ends up making the mortal combat movie not that you have a terribly high bar to clear no um I mean, I, I watched the Paul W.S. Anderson version from the 90s quite a lot when it was on video, just because it was a Mortal Kombat thing and I wanted to watch it. But yeah, that still still wasn't great. But also, I guess kind of was the high watermark for adaptations of it. So I guess they can go nuts uh, and, and just about make something half decent. Okay, so our main topic this week, in keeping with the theme of the last few episodes where we've kind of talked about music in relation to film and television we're going to be talking about i guess iconic music or, or music that is almost transcendent of the place it originated from the movie that spawned it and has kind of seeped into broader culture is being has been repurposed or remixed or parodied to the extent that you know something like the re 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 from psycho mm-hmm. is something that everyone knows everyone knows what that is everyone knows the cultural context for it even though i think a lot of people who like people who are like maybe of a younger generation or people who just aren't into classic cinema will know what that means they'll know that that's from psycho without having seen psycho i certainly knew what it meant long before seeing psycho yes Uh, and yeah so so that's kind of the the area we're going to be discussing on this episode so so obviously psycho uh, is kind of a, a big example uh, there but uh, uh, did you have any uh, other examples to kind of like kick us off Emily? I think for me like my closest modern example to the psycho which everyone can do an impression of whether they want to or not yeah. um, is the Netflix mm. I think that's just hit everyone because as idents go you can't I, I certainly can't think of an audio sting that is as prevalent and they recently changed the visual ident like Mm. the bbc does every so often to this big sort of like rainbow kind of folding out of of bars but there's um on 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 netflix uh there's a special from um a german comedian anissa amani and the preview i remember watching and she speaks about like, oh, well, you know, I wasn't sure about whether to do a Netflix special. And then I just heard in my head, bah, bah, and and saw mm-hmm. the dollar signs like coming up. And I think that's it. Like, that's that's my main equivalent, because I feel like every week that we come together to talk and record this thing, there's something about Netflix mm. always. And I think for me and it's kind of I wouldn't say taken over but in such a short space of time, it is neck and neck with HBO's... <laughs> this, will, this will also include just lots of me like making noises and trying to make them sound like the one that, that's in my head. But those, those, <laughs> those are the two, I think, like HBO and Netflix, because they're the mm. first things that you hear before yeah. you see so much of what we call peak TV. And I think, and I think that's just... It's almost Pavlovian. Where you hear that and it's like, oh, we're about to watch something good. Yeah, with the HBO one, when you imagine the art, the like the mm. the the sound, what's the thing that immediately follows it for you? What's the show that you most associate with that sound? Great question. So for me, it has to be Six Feet Under. 
because it just tips mm. into but i think neck and neck with the sopranos is my hbo yeah. oh no wait no actually it's a it's a it's a hat trick it's a tie with sex in the city and the jaunty ah. piano yeah i think i think for me it's probably those ones are all definitely up there but for me it's it's curb ah like, <laughs> just for me as soon as I hear that, every time I watch a HBO show and it, you know, kind of the static goes away and then it doesn't go into... <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, like, what are you even doing if you're not using that music? Um, yeah. So that's one also I kind of feel, uh, in terms of like recent examples, that feels like the, the curb music certainly feels like something that has transcended its origins through uh through memes um, yes like so many people use that music for uh you know if um uh, the one that i think of in particular uh was when chris christie endorsed donald trump during the 2016 campaign and there was like the presser where he just looked like it was a hostage video <laughs> um because he was just standing in the background he looked horrifying and someone set that you know took that image and then you know they slowly zoomed on his face and just put the curb music over in the background <laughs> and like it's just like oh yeah that's perfect that really does encapsulate the the feeling that's coming up there or even just uh yesterday i think uh, or this morning i saw it someone did that over the end credits for snl uh where i think over the the, the goodbyes like john legend was kind of going around trying to hug people oh, and he always seems to get yeah. someone as they were turning away <laughs> And uh, it, they just put the, the curb music over it. It's really funny uh, and really sad. Um, but that's one where I think, obviously, Curb Enthusiasm is kind of a iconic television show and a lot of people have, have seen it and experienced it over the years. It's been, quote-unquote, on the air for a very long time. It's had some long gaps between seasons. Yeah. But, you know, it's been on the air in one form or another since 1999 when the, the special aired. So I think a lot of people are, are familiar with that, but I, I because it was off the air between like 2011 and 2017 or whatever it was, I think that music for there must be a whole generation of people where that music is just, oh, you play this over a uh, an awkward situation, not maybe necessarily <laughs> realising that it's from a show about awkward situations. Yeah. I don't know the one, this is less less true, but like I really feel like people have got a lot of mileage out of the it's always sunny theme, yes. particularly if they want to do that. You know, you take a video clip where someone says something and then you put on the black screen with the white text of them saying the exact opposite. So the most recent one was for uh, Game of Thrones, where I won't say what it is for people who uh, aren't caught up, but there was a, a scene of the character of Daenerys saying one thing and then immediately the music kicking in and the words and saying Daenerys did exactly that utterly horrible thing she said she wouldn't do (laughs) (laughs) it's just like that's a as a comedic conceit i guess you kind of have to have a knowledge that it's always sunny as a thing but also just as a gag it kind of works you may not have seen any episode of that but you would you you would still grasp the context of why the joke works yes in terms of classic examples of, of music that i think really just has seeped into the culture beyond its origins i think the kind of the one of the biggest ones is jaws the theme from jaws oh of course which is uh unmistakable and has been used 
hundreds of times yeah. uh, if you go on IMDb and just look at John Williams's IMDb like under soundtracks where it lists just like Jaws theme where it's been used it's been used in so many movies most famously I think uh, for comedic effect in Airplane oh. where it's used at the beginning of the movie <laughs> One Crazy Summer uses it Caddyshack 2 it's used in Swingers K9 basically any movie where you uh, probably have someone in a pool <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and you want to just kind of have a comedic over-exaggeration of threat, like that simple two-note building, building, building is really unmistakable and so easily reused and particularly in a comedic context. Like it's so menacing that as soon as you put it into anything even like remotely lighthearted, it instantly becomes funny in a way. Yes. I think like my sort of flip to that is, um, I mean, think, thinking about sort of pieces of music that are taken and used incongruously. A lot of mm. people will point to Inglorious Bastards, which I think, eh, well, you know, but for me, like the most pertinent example is in Finch's Go at the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in mm. the climax where we have Enya. <laughs> yes <laughs> it's like how could this be any more sinister it, it it highlights it like that contrast of using i think it's orinoco flow isn't it it, it is yeah. it is which which previously used to be you know the kind of sunday drive time classic and it's the soundtrack mm. to this horrific climax and it and it manages to have that really dark humor to it that just seems to accentuate how horrible everything is rather than yes. lean into what could be some, something that would would kind of match there's something about that contrast that is really oh yeah give me the creeps thinking about it even just now <laughs> yeah i think there is something very visceral about taking something that is not necessarily upbeat but it's certainly non-menacing yes. <laughs> um, i think is is definitely the way to describe orinoco flow it's oh. not like i guess it's there's there's something kind of vaguely inspirational about it but it's not necessarily kind of like poppy yeah it's just kind of like a, a song that you listen to and you don't feel as if something kind of untoward and terrible is going to happen to you yeah and then having it soundtrack you know stellan skarsgård walking around and doing his villain monologue and seeming it, it's i i I have kind of mixed feelings on the Fincher tattoo movie, but I do really like that sequence because it's almost like he knows he's a character and he's a villain in a movie. Yes. <laughs> like he's gone out of his way to think of what could be the most distressing song I could choose to play over this sequence just for making someone just question the very nature of reality and of the awful things I'm going to do to them. Enya. <laughs> yeah, the answer to everything. Um, uh, and yeah, and kind of, I guess probably the, one of the more famous examples of that dichotomy would be something like Reservoir Dogs with Steeler's Wheel, where, you know, it's a incredibly kind of peppy song, one hit wonder from the 60s that hardly anyone at the time really remembered all that well. You know, it's kind of something that maybe got played on oldies, station, oldies stations, but then you soundtrack a, just a moment of really horrendous violence with it, and that places it in an entirely new context and Tarantino wasn't the first person to think about taking you know upbeat and uh upbeat pop songs and using them to soundtrack kind of uh terrible actions on screen but it really feels as if he 
kicked that into gear and you you know you kind of got that stuff happening a lot throughout the uh throughout the 90s like as everyone tried to copy what tarantino had done and that there was kind of like a feeding frenzy to kind of ape his style um that was one of the most easily identifiable things i think people latched onto is like oh horrible thing happens with you know 60s kitschy pop playing in the background yes absolutely and very few of them doing it quite as well mm-hmm. um, and tarantino also is someone who he's someone who likes to reuse scores from other movies and kind of repurpose them i think uh probably the most famous example in the sense that it probably has overshadowed the original movie that it was used in is the bit of brian De palmer's sisters which is used in kill bill yeah uh which is uh you probably know as the whistly bit the that bit which is from sisters originally and is used to a uh, really unnerving effect in the movie when uh daryl hannah's character is plotting to kill uh, the bride and that that to me is like kind of the the key example of someone taking a piece of music and repurposing it in for their own and and really in some ways taking ownership of it yes yeah totally uh, in terms of recent scores that I really feel have really kind of taken hold outside of their original uh, context, uh, The Social Network, I think, is one uh, for me, like a major one, because I feel as if this, the score for that has been reused so often. The two most exam- recent examples, or the most prominent examples I can think of were Ken Burns uses a lot of it in the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, it became one of his go-tos on that and adam curtis who is someone who loves a, a film oh, score well yeah <laughs> particularly a john carpentery uh theme tune if he can grab hold of one used it a lot in hypernormalization his movie from 2016 or 2017 whenever yes, that one came out then, yeah there's that, that that to me feels like a score that has had an outsized impact from the, the movie i mean the movie was a success but like that seems to be the element that people really latched onto and have reused over and over again Adam Curtis, I think, is the absolute peak of that, what we were saying about that kind of like mix of things to have that contrast to bring out the real core of a scene that Mm. that might seem sinister. I think he did a little video, I don't know whether it was on his blog or on YouTube, I can't quite remember, but he has a little explainer of like, here is some archive footage that I found of some people in the 50s dancing. Look Mm. what happens when I put this music to it look what happens when I put this music to it. And it's two mm-hmm. different, very different, like, um, songs. I mean, I think Adam Curtis is, like, a massive Trent Reznor fan. Anyway. Yeah. Loves Burial as well. That is a beautiful episode of the Adam Buxton podcast, if you're looking for a podcast to listen to after us. Yes. Adam, when Adam met Adam, it's really lovely. They both just sort of fanboy about each other and, and music and stuff. But I love that Adam Curtis is a massive Burial fan. Because who isn't? But he mm. talks about how emotional he finds music and how so much of the arguments that he makes over over his um documentary career i think he really appreciates how the music does so much of the work for him Mm, in creating in creating that atmosphere but getting across that emotional punch of what he's getting out of of this material and i think he's 
the thing thing that I like about Adam Curtis a lot is that he always starts with like I'm going to tell you a story and he does mm. tell you a story and he can he can kind of back it up with fact and things but he is still he's still a show person he's still trying to engage you through entertainment in order to educate you and he is just such a huge music fan and mm. I think he's in awe of the power that music can do so I think he feels like he's doing you know maybe like half of it and music's doing the rest of it and not just hyper normalization but like all of the scores for his documentaries have always been really I think part and parcel of what he's trying to do and he seems very grateful because of that I think which is what I always really like about him mm, yeah there is because a lot of the times the the stories that he's telling are somewhat esoteric yeah. or they are they're very much about him being like if you want to understand the the conflicts in Afghanistan over the the 20th century you need to go back to this one meeting that FDR had in 1939 or whatever like like they are very much him trying to really pulling back and zooming in at the same time kind of doing a real vertigo effect of storytelling yeah. <laughs> where he's like saying in order to understand a lot of these very complicated things you kind of need to understand the actions of specific powerful individuals who set these things in motion and sometimes the threads from that can be very particularly in something like hypernormalization which i think is like three hours long or yeah. bitter lake which is also a very long one yeah they they can kind of sprawl out and the music a lot of the time really does provide the focal point for for what he's trying to do there is kind of the the, the movements that he's kind of constructing through his music choices and the the way that all of these different things kind of like flow into each other you know he's taking all of these dis disparate ideas but he's linking them through a common musical palette almost yeah he's got like, that he's got that soundscape that manages to mm. unify and help back up making his incredibly like global and historic perspective feel much more cohesive than without yeah. it. I yeah, he is really, really quite brilliant at, at using that sort of stuff. And as soon as uh, I started hearing like the bits of the social network score in there, I kind of like always oh, found something he likes. Yeah, <laughs> found something yes. new that he likes. Yeah. Uh, and I'm always excited to see that. Also, like the the one burial song that he uses in Bitter Lake yes. uh, is fun. an absolutely gorgeous piece of music. This isn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a case that the music from this is reused a lot, but it kind of re almost reshaped the grammar of how film music sounded for a few years was the score for Inception, particularly the infamous warm, yeah. like the, the, the deep, bassy, uh, assaultive sounds that Hans Zimmer uses in that score, which really came to define um a lot of what a lot of other people were doing at the same time particularly if you look at a lot of blockbuster cinema and any time a spaceship hovered over a city and fired a beam down which is like 90 percent of what superhero movies became for a while that would be soundtracked by like that deep rumble kind of suddenly hitting you and trying to overwhelm you particularly uh, there's a lot of that in like the Zack snyder movies but also in uh, trailers use that a lot because yes the trailer for Inception was very kind of effective in how it sold the premise and how it used that score to kind of 
really pound into you that something big and important and momentous was happening and it really felt as if the next like five years of trailers always use that cl- uh, cliche of someone saying a line of dialogue then suddenly a big like uh brass sound just going and like making you think oh my god the world's in trouble have we genuinely made it nearly 40 minutes into this podcast and this is the first time we've mentioned inception i think we deserve some kind of treat for that ed Mm. yeah we take a long time to get to the obvious stuff (laughs) Uh, that's an srs promise (laughs) (laughs) but it definitely feels like uh of, of recent years there aren't that many scores that really kind of break through in a major way. Yeah. But but the ones that do just seem to have like a huge impact for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, some of this was discussed on, I think Every Frame of Painting did it, where they talked about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how yes. for a lot of those movies, the sound stakescape is kind of indistinct and it's all kind of samey because often they would use like a temp track from a different movie and then say to the composer, oh, could you do something that's basically this? Because we like this. And so a lot of stuff all kinds of ends up sounding very, very similar. That's why, like, the Transformers scores sound very similar to Inception and they also sound very similar to, like, Age of Ultron and all this sort of stuff. And I think that means that it kind of makes it harder for a lot of those things to to stand out and... Maybe it's not a coincidence that both Inception and Social Network came out in 2010, which was one of the last years before you really started to see the dominance of the MCU sneak through. Like, you'd had two successful Iron Man movies, you'd had a not very successful Hulk movie, and it still was up in the air as to whether or not this whole cinematic universe thing was going to pay off. Uh, And maybe, like... It's just that in the years since then is when you've seen the, the 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 quality of film music kind of go down a little bit. Although some people have pushed back about against that. Mark Mothersborg, in fact, cited that Every Frame of Painting video as a big influence on his work on the score for Thor Ragnarok, which stands out as being really, really playful and distinctive music. Not necessarily the sort of music that's going to get reused a lot, but, you know, like maybe there's a pushback amongst composers now who think maybe we should try and do things that are a little more different than this. Yeah. Yeah. And also just a, this is a very hyper specific example, but it's like just a, a something that I, I found really strange and it's literally almost the only thing I remember from this movie, but the movie joy with Jennifer Lawrence has several sequences that make very prominent use of music from the TV show, the good wife, <laughs> particularly the big, sequence of Lawrence's character first going on television to sell her wonder mop like that uses probably the most famous bit of music from the good wife which is this this music that's played whenever there's something very exciting and propulsive and impactful happening and i remember watching that and just being really confused by <laughs> by why like seven or eight bits of music from the good wife ended up being used in that movie yeah. and part of me just assumes that it was a temp track that was never replaced because they just thought oh this is this works really well and it does (laughs) but i i do find it very fascinating when things like that happen when people just stumble on a piece of music and just think yeah let's just let's just do this someone's already done the work for us that'll do and we end this week's episode of the show with shot first shot recommend which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week i have some theater to recommend this week 
because culturally, Ooh, fancy. I know. Um, I went to see one of the most exhilarating live theatre experiences I've had in some time. I went to see Electrolyte, which is billed as gig theatre because everyone bar the main performer is playing an instrument at some time okay. or another. And I saw it as part of the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival, who I did some work for, and they are touring. So the um, theatre company is called Wildcard Theatre, and Electrolyte follows a young woman in Leeds as she kind of breaks away from her core friendship group and goes to London in search of her mother. And it's just a phenomenal piece of work, the energy that comes off of them. They're going on tour and they'll be across the UK and Ireland for the next few weeks. And from from how much they gave the night that I saw them, that is a mammoth task that they are undertaking. But I have no doubt that they're going to smash it every single night. So my recommendation, if you're in the UK and Ireland, absolutely look up Wildcard Theatre and Electrolyte because you do not want to miss out. Fantastic. I am going to pull a Emily Benita and recommend two things. Hey! <laughs> I, I much prefer that that's what an Emily Benita refers to. Carry on. <laughs> also kind of keep it in, keep it tied to an episode we did a few weeks ago, the visual album I Am Easy to Find, Ooh. which is the visual album by The National, which was created oh. in order to promote their latest album. Uh, it's directed by Mike Mills of... 20th century women fame mr miranda july yes and it is a really kind of beautiful wrenching 25 minute video starring uh, alicia vikander who plays a woman who kind of goes through over the course of the 25 minutes every stage of her life she plays the same character at every age so you see her initially oh, wow. and she's like playing with small children and interacting with her parents as if she is a child and then becoming an adult and then eventually an old woman. And it's incredibly kind of moving in its exploration of the cycles of life and how perhaps we tend to view people as different people at different points in their life, as opposed to a single person who kind of gradually changes. And I really found that element of it incredibly uh, heart-wrenching and particularly, you know, like the, the, the story of it is not necessarily that... Uh, deep or whatever you want to say about like it's just you know kind of events occurring to this character over the course of her entire life but seeing it all kind of condensed and with this often very beautiful uh music playing over it i don't think it's the whole album i think it's like just kind of bits and pieces of songs that kind of um fade in and out to suit the mood it's it's an incredibly effective piece and i i, I really recommend it to people um, if you don't like The National, it's probably not going to convince you, but it's yeah. still a really interesting piece of work. And the other thing I'm going to recommend is John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum, which I saw today and uh, enjoyed a great deal. I love the first John Wick movie. I wasn't entirely sold on the second one, which I thought was a little too self-serious when it came to its ridiculous lore and backstory. This one, I think, strikes a nice balance where it is kind of very involved in its uh, determination to really mine into this secret world of assassins and kind of all of their very strange rituals. But it's kind of silly and kind of winking about it. It's the action in it is kind of the thing you go for and the action is kind of beautifully choreographed and really inventive. It reminded me a lot of 
uh, of Korean cinema, particularly uh, the movie from a few years ago called The Villainous, which is also kind of very good, although that one is, I think, all first person and is a little hard to take, but has some amazing action sequences in it. Um, but that that's a movie that features a very thrilling sequence of uh, people trying to kill someone whilst they're all riding on motorcycles, which I think is very heavily influenced one of the key scenes in Parabellum. And just in its mixture of tones, this kind of like gleeful, pulpy silliness with, you know, kind of a real investment in the the soul of John Wick, essentially, of what he wants to do with his life, uh, why he wants to keep on living, why he keeps fighting, why he keeps killing. And it's just a really delightful, strange, you know, kind of little movie. And I do love that that this series has become as someone uh, else described it, kind of like the action Austin Powers, where the first movie was kind of a modest hit that did really well on video, and then the subsequent ones have just been like massive money makers because uh, of the the audience it's built elsewhere. You know, you don't see that happen that often these days for an original franchise to grow that way. So uh, I'm I'm really pleased to see that it's done so well and has kind of built up this unlikely multimedia franchise around Keanu Reeves. Nice. Uh, but yeah, it's, re- it's really good and people should uh, should check it out. And that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the, this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, Player FM, Spotify. Leave us a review, rate us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from... Oh, puppies! <laughs>